The very name of the book of Acts infers action. Yet the book opens with Jesus instructing his disciples to wait. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Periods of delay and inactivity when our lives are put on hold are often the most trying times for a believer. Still, that time is not wasted. Stay with us now as Dr. Boyce explores the reason Jesus' followers were told to wait and not to act and identifies the fruits that came about in their lives and ministry as a result of that inaction. Returning in our study of Acts to the second half of chapter 1 that speaks of a period of waiting on the part of the disciples in Jerusalem prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is described in chapter 2. Now, it's an interesting period. As we put the data together, we discover that it was a period of 10 days. The disciples apparently didn't know at the time how long it was going to be. The Lord had said to them that they were to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit should be poured out not many days hence. Well, that was an indirect reference, and they waited, probably not knowing exactly when that promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was to be fulfilled. But we know that it was 10 days because the Holy Spirit came in power upon this company of the people at Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's the Latin word for that, and it's the Latin ecclesiastical term for the Old Testament term, Feast of Weeks, which refers to a 50-day period after Passover, and we know that the Lord was taken back to heaven in his ascension 40 days after the resurrection. So there was a 10-day period in there in which the disciples waited here in Jerusalem. Now, when we look at this from our perspective, that is, recognizing as we do now that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and that Pentecost was the Feast of Weeks, and that the Feast of Weeks was that time in the Jewish year when the first sheaves of the harvest were presented, the, the harvest of first fruits before the great harvest. All of this is very significant and symbolic. Certainly, when these events took place on Pentecost, these early Christians who were Jews, well steeped in the Old Testament traditions, understood immediately what the symbolism of the day involved. The great blessing that they experienced on Pentecost where these thousands of people believed and came into the church was, by the very symbolism of the day, only the first fruits of that great response to the gospel that they were going to see as that gospel was preached, first of all in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria, and eventually, as Acts shows us, to the far reaches of the world. But at this time, as I say, they didn't know that. All they knew is that the Lord had been taken from them into heaven and that they were sent back to Jerusalem to wait for His coming. We're people of action, 
And we read this book, it's even called the book of Acts, speaks of action. We would think that what we should see right away is action. Things should start happening. The Holy Spirit should come at once because the Lord has gone back to heaven. And right away, the gospel should be preached and things should begin to happen spiritually. And instead of that, we find this period of delay. You know, sometimes we have periods like that in our own lives. And it's worth saying, we need to face it squarely, that these are often the hardest periods of all for us to live through as Christians. We want to do something, or what is even more significant, we want God to do something, and when God doesn't do something, we say, well, things have gone wrong, something's not going right, things should be happening if, if I'm really a Christian and I'm really on track with God. That is not necessarily the case. And lest we forget that, we have in this reminder of what happened with the Christians an example for ourselves. Now, think of these with me one at a time. First thing I want you to see is that this 10-day period was a period of obedience. When Jesus was with them before his ascension into heaven, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And then in verse 12, after he's been taken back to heaven, we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem. So Jesus said, Go back to Jerusalem and wait. And when we get to verse 12, we find that that is precisely what they're doing. Another thing they might have done, which we often do, is get on about the business of living their lives. Most of them had businesses before Jesus called them to be disciples. We know that a number of them were fishermen, and perhaps they were involved in other things as well. Uh, during that 40-day period, there was a a time in which they went back to Galilee and began to take up fishing again. Peter especially led the way in that because Peter was not inclined to sit around and do nothing. Uh, he was the archetypal American. He said, you know, there are things to be done, so let's get on with it. Let's go fishing. But Jesus told them not to do that. He said, you go back to Jerusalem and you wait there because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And so they did. Now, there's a second way in which they prepared for what was coming, and that is that they gathered together, that is, with one another, Christian fellowship. You read about in verse 14, they all joined together constantly. It was an interesting gathering, this gathering in Jerusalem. There were the 11 disciples, first of all. They're mentioned there in the passage, Peter and John and James and Andrew, that's four of them, and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, that's eight, and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. There were two Judases in the apostolic band, and this was the other one, Judas the son of James. Eleven apostles. And then in addition to that, Luke, who is the author of this book and who in his gospel as well seems to have a special concern for the women. Of all the New Testament writers, he was the least chauvinistic. Luke mentions the women that were there, or were the women, he says, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So there was that group gathered to the apostles. And then, as we go on to find out in verse 15, by the time Peter stood up to give his little speech concerning the election of a twelfth to fill out the apostolic band, there were 120 gathered. Well, it was an interesting 
fellowship that they had in those days. We need to apply that to ourselves. It's a principle of what it means to be a human being to say that people need people. About the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be utterly isolated from other people. If we're to grow intellectually and socially and spiritually, we need other people. And if people need people, well, Christians most certainly need Christians. It's a pattern of God's dealing. It's a rule of God's dealing that when you become a Christian, you do not become a Christian and enter into isolation. By the very fact that you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you enter into that body of those who also are his disciples. That's why Jesus spoke about his body. That's why we speak of the church. It's the company of the people of God. And these early disciples were not loners. They said, you know, we really do need one another, and we are all partners in the same thing. And so they gather together in this kind of fellowship. That's another way in which we shall prepare. We must prepare for what God is going to do. Now, when I read verse 14 a moment ago, I'm sure you noticed that there is a third item in their preparation. Not only did they practice obedience in returning to Jerusalem and no doubt doing other things as well and fellowship by joining together constantly during those 10 days, we're also told verse 14 that they joined together constantly in prayer. You see, it might have been a time of waiting, but it wasn't a time of utter inactivity. In this spiritual sense, there was work to be done. And so they prayed. They prayed together, and as the text says, they prayed together constantly. That's to say they were often, frequently, regularly in prayer. Now you ask the question, what did they pray for during those days? It doesn't give us an answer, but sometimes we talk about prayer in terms of that simple little acrostic acts, A for adoration, C for confession. T for thanksgiving and S for supplication. I can well imagine that they did each of those four things. Certainly adoration. After all, God had just worked in their time and in their company, and they had been witnesses of that which was the very focal point of all world history. God had sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, to teach them and to die on the cross and then to rise again from the dead. Certainly when they prayed in those days, they, they adored God for his wisdom and love and grace in accomplishing such a great salvation in their time. That salvation to which all of the Old Testament and all its forms, all its prophecies and all its types had led up. And then too, I think that it must have been a time of confession for them. They were getting ready for a work that Jesus had for them to do and they must, all of them, have been very conscious of their sin. And then they must have given thanks Thanks for all that God had done. Thanks for all that the Lord Jesus Christ had taught them during those 40 days. Thanks for forgiveness and for restoration and for a task and for each other and for life and health and all those other things. And then I think they must have prayed in supplication too, asking God for the strength to do the task that was before them. I think they must have even prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which he had told them to wait in Jerusalem to expect. Sometimes people get hung up on that, you know. They say if God is going to do something, if it's in the sovereign will of God for him to accomplish a certain thing, why then why pray for it? He's going to do it anyway. That is a great misunderstanding of how God works. Oh, it's true. 
But God is the sovereign Lord. He's your Lord. He's the Lord of history. God does what God will do. God accomplishes his purposes. The disobedience of men does not frustrate him. But when God accomplishes his purpose, he does it through means. If he's going to save someone, he does it by leading someone else to go to them with the gospel and speak to them about Jesus Christ. And when God accomplishes great things in the world, especially times of great revival, he always does it by leading his people to pray. And so they must have prayed for that. I think they must have prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit and blessing when the Holy Spirit came and strength to stand up and, and be counted when the Holy Spirit came upon them and preached the gospel clearly, and they must have prayed for great blessing. Peter, when he stood up to talk about this matter of the defection and the company of the apostles began to quote scripture. He says, verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he goes on, later on, he, he quotes twice, once from Psalm 69, verse 25, and a second time from Psalm 109, verse 8. Certainly, Peter was studying scripture in those days. And I think the other disciples must have been studying scripture as well. You see, those two things go together in the Christian life. Prayer in which we talk to God and Bible study in which God talks to us. I think prayer is of great importance, but somebody has said, I think wisely, that when we're talking to God and God is talking to us, we better let God do most of the talking. I, I think, too, because Jesus had sent them to Jerusalem to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that they must have been searching in the Old Testament to see what prophecies concerned the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because when the Holy Spirit did come on Pentecost and Peter stood up to preach his first great sermon, he began with the key text from the Old Testament, from the book of Joel, the second chapter, verses 28 through 32. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and so forth. He must have found that text during these 10 days of Bible study. He must have said, look, if, if Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be poured out upon the church, we had better find out what it is he's going to do. And so they went to the Old Testament to find out about it. You see, we sometimes say as Christians, oh, we want God to bless our church, or we want God to bless our family, or we want God to bless our Bible study, or our nation, or our city, or whatever it may be. The way God does that is through the Scriptures. As people come to understand what He's written and respond to it and believe it and proclaim it to other people in the world. So if you find yourself in what seems to you to be a time of waiting or inactivity, Redeem the time, as these disciples did, and become a better student, more knowledgeable of the Word of God. I notice another thing that they did, and it's the last of these five things that I'm mentioning in this study, and that is that they recognized the need for leadership, and they took steps to supply that need. In their case, it involved the election of this man, Matthias, to fill the place of Judas, who had betrayed Christ. Now, I am sure that God must have led them in this action. I say that because there are people who have studied this passage and have been critical of their actions and have said, well, they, they were operating in the flesh at this period, not, not doing what they should have been doing. They chose this man Matthias by lot, that is, as we would say, by drawing straws, and people have said, well, that was a, a pagan way of doing things. 
And uh, they've looked at this man, Matthias, and they have said, well, that's the last we've ever heard of him. Uh, they must have made a mistake. And then they look at Paul and they say, well, Paul was obviously God's choice to be an apostle, and he was an apostle, of course. I don't think that's true. In the first place, Paul certainly was an apostle, but in a different sense, in some ways, than what's established here. Peter made a great point of saying that the one who was chosen must have been a witness of the life of Jesus Christ from the very beginning, that is, from the baptism of John up to and including the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul didn't quite fit that. As a matter of fact, later on, he had a hard time on occasion defending his apostleship at exactly that point. And he said that his vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus was the equivalent of that. No doubt it was. But you see, that's, that's a bit different. And as far as this matter of lots being a pagan custom is concerned, actually it was an Old Testament tradition, a very strong and good one. The will of God was often determined in Old Testament times by the priests through the Urim and the Thurim, which was the Old Testament equivalent of that. So they weren't just inventing something or falling into pagan ways, they were actually following an Old Testament precedent. And more than that, as we look at this in the context, we see they had just been praying and studying the scriptures and what the Holy Spirit had apparently brought to their mind were these texts quoted by Peter that concerned this place of leadership. Well, you see, as they studied the Word and prayed, they said to themselves, you know, if the Holy Spirit is going to come and we apostles are going to be Christ's witnesses leading this great advance of the gospel into the world, well, then we have to get our house in order. We, we have to have all of the apostles lined up. And since we're missing one, we, we have to ask the Lord Jesus Christ whom he's going to choose to fill that 12th position. And so Matthias was chosen. You know, sometimes we, we pray for revival. We say, and we do it with a good heart. We want you to bless the church and convict of sin and bring many to salvation and and bring about a revival in our time, and that's very good, that's true. But I wonder, do we ever stop to think what that would involve if a real revival should come? Most of us are quite ignorant of revival or great movements of the Spirit of God. But you know, as you read church history to find out what happens in such periods, you find that it is what I would call a very draining, physically as well as spiritually draining time. In times of revival, people are under such conviction of sin that they, that they press into the churches. They don't want to go home. They want more instruction. They, they want to be, be helped individually. They, they, they want their sins dealt with and their lives straightened out and they're under conviction and they can't let go until God produces a change in their lives. And that happens in large numbers. What, what, what do you do in a time like that if you have such large numbers of people hungering for the gospel and the truth of God. How are you going to cope, even in terms of Christian leadership? Who's going to teach those people? Who's going to disciple them? Who's going to counsel with them when the Holy Spirit moves in such ways? You see, if we were serious about revival, we'd begin to make preparation and training the leaders that would be needed in such a time. I say that with some knowledge because there is, as I've been told, in Argentina and perhaps in other South American countries, something of a revival movement today. And I've been told by people who know the state of the church that the preparation for this time of revival began years ago. 
as the churches began to pray for revival and ask themselves what they should do in preparation for it when the revival eventually should come. They said to themselves, for example, what are we going to do if God sends a thousand more people into our church? They didn't have much money. It wasn't a question of saying, well, we have to build bigger churches to accommodate them when they come. They said, we're going to have to handle it in other ways. If, if we're going to handle that many people, the only possible way we can do it is in the homes of the believers. Each home's going to have to be a, a little miniature church. And if we're to do that effectively, well, then the leaders of those homes have to be trained to handle uh, spiritual fruit in such a time. And so they began to train the leaders of their homes, the, the mothers and the fathers of their congregation, to be host to little churches when the revival should come. And they did a number of other things like that as well. And after they had done it, when the preparation was complete, God poured forth a time of great blessing. And when we think about our church, we need to think along those lines. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm very thankful for what God is doing. I think these are great days. I think they're great days for our country as we see a real spiritual interest in, in high places as well as in other places. And yet at the same time that I say that, I have to say that I'm not satisfied with what's happened. I, I look at our city and the work that needs to be done and our country and its drift into materialism and sin and disobedience, and I say, oh Lord, send a revival, send a revival in our time. We have to begin to prepare, we have to use these days of waiting, believing that if we use them in obedience to Jesus Christ, the blessing that we seek in our world so desperately needs will come. Let us pray. Our Father, we're thankful as we study this book of Acts to find it so very, very practical, speaking to us where we are. We know it's from a time which in terms of years is far away, but in terms of the experience of your people as, as near as where we are right now. Father, we have studied different principles of preparation, preparation for growth in this study, things which just because they are preparation are things we can do now. And Father, we ask that you help us to be serious about this, not just read these things and say, well, that's wonderful how God acted in that early church, but rather as things that need to be present in increasing measure among ourselves in preparation for that greater blessing that is yet to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce. Doing is often the best way of learning. God sent out his apostles with little training to spread the word and to teach them to rely solely on him for their success and provision. Learn how God trained his people for service and why that method still applies to our modern world. This week's free CD offer is a message by Dr. Philip Ryken entitled, An Internship for the Apostles. This CD is our gift to you. To receive it, just give us a call at 1-800-488-1888, and we'll be pleased to send you a copy of An Internship for the Apostles. That number again is 1-800-488-1888. 
1888. The growth of a ministry, like the growth of the church, depends on its message and on the people who make its increase possible through their generous support. You can be part of the Bible Study Hour's growth when you support Dr. Boyce's teaching with your prayers and gifts. To make a contribution, visit our website at thebiblestudyhour.org. You could also call us if you prefer at 1-800-488-1888. And our mailing address is 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. In Canada, you can reach the Bible Study Hour at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Dr. Boyce's impact reached far beyond the pulpit. Our Bible teacher was a prolific author and articulate spokesman for the Reformed faith around the world. Audio and print materials from Dr. Boyce's special events, broadcast, and writing ministries are available at reformedresources.org. That's reformedresources.org. I'm Mark Daniels. You know, the Spirit existed long before Pentecost. He hovered over the waters in the first chapter of Genesis and breathed life into man in the second. The Spirit of God is a breath, a wind that blows, and with it comes change, like the changed lives of twelve frightened fishermen as they waited in a house in Jerusalem. Join Dr. James Boyce as he reveals the nature and the power of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. That's next time on The Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.